What's up everyone and welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now where we cover how the environment, our society and corporate governance affects and are affected by our economy. I'm your host Mike DiCibato and this week we have a multi-part story for you on the failed attempt by Australia's largest energy provider and polluter to spin off its thermal coal assets. Thanks as always for joining us. Stay tuned. So you're a fossil fuel company and you want to decarbonize your assets. You have two broad options to do so. You could set a strategy to transition your fossil fuel assets to lower carbon options like renewables, or you can sell your dirty assets to someone else and immediately lower your company's carbon footprint with little long-term effort. The second option is more popular than you might think. For example, Royal Dutch Shell sold off its stake in the Umechim oil field in Nigeria last year to a buyer with looser climate goals and less emissions oversight. But Shell isn't an anomaly. A recent report by the Environmental Defense Fund, or the EDF, found that there have been thousands of, of upstream oil and gas deals from 2017 to 2021 that moved fossil fuel assets from companies with public climate commitments to companies that lack such commitments. Or in ESG terms, the assets were transferred from climate leaders to laggards. So it isn't so surprising that, according to the EDF study, that these transfers often led to higher emissions at these sites and less transparency overall. For example, that Shell sale, according to a reporting by the New York Times, as soon as Shell left, the oil field underwent a change so significant it was detected from space. It was a surge in flaring or the wasteful burning of excess gas in towering columns of smoke and fire. We actually also looked at something similar to this in our 2022 ESG trends to watch. We looked at the arguments for and against the idea that fossil fuel intensive assets are being offloaded to private equity funds. I'll leave that link in the podcast description if you want to read more on it after this episode. But let's now shift hypotheticals quickly. If you're an investor, say, that wants your company to decarbonize, the company that you own, that you have shares in, rather than offloading its carbon-emitting assets, it's a move that you might not want to have happen because maybe you want the overall emissions of the world to go down. So what can you do? Well, if you have enough money and power, you can do what tech billionaire turned activist investor Mike Cannon Brooks did in Australia. You can amass enough shares and prevent the asset sale or spinoff from happening. This is exactly what happened this week between Cannon Brooks and Australian energy giant AGL Energy. AGL Energy planned to spin off its coal-fired power plants, but due to shareholder pressure led by Cannon Brooks, the company abandoned its plan, and then its chief executive and chair resigned, as did two other members of its board. It was quite the shakeup, and one that warrants further discussion. So to help me in that, I called up my colleagues Elsha Mamadov, who covers energy utilities for us, and Harlan Tufford, who covers all matters governance. And I first asked Elchin to take me through AGL's plans and why it went all so wrong or right, depending on which side you might be on. AGL is a uh, is a large utility in Australia that wanted to split itself into two companies. One would have been a retailer, so they would have provided customers with um, electricity, gas, and telecom services, and they would have very little direct emissions. You know, and that's why upon listing, there would have been um, net zero 
for direct emissions at, at least. Um, uh, so uh, that company would have been called AGL Australia. The second company would have been called Axel Energy, and that would have hosted uh, the coal-fired power plants. Um, they the, the would have had a bunch of um, other assets like gas storage, but also they would have had wind farms, including planned wind farm projects so there's a big pipeline there and the idea would have been oh, okay we're gonna sh uh, shut our coal-fired power plants and we would invest in wind farms to decarbonize however um, that closure the phase out of coal would have been very slow so just to give you an example some of the coal-fired power plants would have been run by as late as 2045 2045 the standard scientific consensus on when coal-fired power plants need to be completely offline for industrialized countries to keep temperatures under 1.5 degrees Celsius, or now more likely 2 degrees Celsius, is 2030. Mike Cannon-Brooks and his other large shareholder backers like HESTA, one of Australia's largest pension funds, said such a slow decarbonization plan not only wouldn't help Australia meet its Paris-aligned targets, but it wouldn't manage the risk of stranded assets at AGL. They argued it was bad for business all around, and what AGL should do is decommission its coal-fired power plants and invest more heavily in renewables. And Mike Cannon-Brooks was willing to put up his money to make this happen. He teamed up with Canadian investment firm Brookfield and offered to buy AGL for $3.9 billion US to take them private and help them make an orderly transition. But AGL declined, saying the company was worth more than that. Its current market cap is around 4.3 billion US, so the offer was 400 shy to what the market thinks the company is worth. There's another dimension to these claims because if you've been paying attention to Australia, you'll know they recently had a federal election that saw voters turn out and vote in favor of more climate action, which we actually talked about in last week's episode, if you want to hear more from that, and it's actually including Alsha. But the reason I bring that up is because due to this failed spin-off, AGL, which is also Australia's largest carbon emitter, is now having to change a large part of its leadership and may be facing the sharp end of a regulatory stick after the new government in Australia gets settled and actually pursues a climate agenda. And so the company, by Elshin's mind, has two options. It could remain a listed company. Um, however, the more likely scenario would be for Mike Cannon Brooks to come back to Brookfield and persuade them to revive their takeover plans, uh, in which case they would um, go and buy out the remaining shareholders of AGL and take the company private. After that, they would accelerate the investment in renewables and speed up the phase out of coal. For me, the biggest lesson in all this is that even if you're trying to be cleaner, the investors like man Mike uh, Cannon Brooks and others could push out you the, the could push the management out and install the new management that would push for faster um, energy transition. Why was AGL so susceptible? To shareholder pressure though. Other energy companies have spun their dirty assets off without public shareholder backlash. Well for one thing AGL's coal assets represents a very high percentage of the company's total generating capacity at 83% which is so large that the company cannot do anything with that without a shareholder vote confirming it. 
This isn't like Shell selling a single oil field. And in Australia, you need 75% of shareholder approval to go ahead with such a large spinoff. And Cannon Brooks already owned about 11% of the company. So he needed only to convince another, you know, about 15% of ownership and he was good to go. AGL is also a relatively small utility. At around 4 billion US market cap, AGL ranks lower than the 12 billion average market cap for the electric utilities industry. So Cannon Brooks didn't need to pull a complicated Elon Musk-esque type financing plan to acquire shares in the company or even play for a takeover with Brookfield Asset Management. So why did AGL attempt to do this spinoff if it was going to be such a large hurdle to get it done? Well, as already alluded to, AGL is lackluster in its carbon reduction plans. And AGL knows this. The spinoff of its coal assets would have been, for the company, a useful way to show investors that it is decarbonizing. And let's be honest here. ESG providers like us can even be stuck in an awkward position when a company spins off its high-emitting assets, since technically, those assets are no longer on the company's balance sheets, and so their exposure to high-emitting operations is lowered overall. It might not lower the world's carbon emissions to do this, and so the company's overall assets are still as threatened as everyone else's due to climate change. But as appearances go, a spin-off works for lowering a company's balance sheet emissions, lowering its overall emissions which is why this has become such a trend in the utilities industry. We've seen some limited success in this strategy. Um, so f utilities like E.ON, for example, they spun off their um, fossil fuel business uh, and called it Uniper, which then they sold to another utility. And uh, they, they, the management says they created value that way because at the moment E.ON, after that spin-off, is only a grid company, power and gas grid company, um, as well as a power and gas retailer. So they don't have any generation at all. So they did this several asset uh, um, asset sales and uh, and spin-offs, and, and now they're, they're clean a utility. In the US, Exelon did a similar thing when they sp where they spun off their whole power generation business into a new listed company, Constellation. And now Exelon is a... Uh, pure play um, grid company and that kind of um, the, the, the management hopes that they could attract a different sort of investor who doesn't want any exposure to um, any kind of um, power generation especially fossil fuel um, but also they want regulatory earnings like regulated revenues because if you're a power generator a chunk of your earnings are unregulated whereas a lot of investors in your utility they don't want your earnings to go up and down too much uh, and finally there's another example even within a certain subgroup of utilities like grid operators there is a pivot towards electricity because the gas is a potentially stranded asset so in the uk for example national grid and sse they both uh, are either, uh, selling their gas 
networks and they're investing in electricity networks and the idea is that okay electricity is going to decarbonize and and we're 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 investing in the future decarbonization and let someone else uh, including private equity um, deal with uh, stranded assets the risk of gas pipelines there's also the argument that splitting off fossil fuel assets from companies will prevent the businesses from having to appease competing shareholder interests shell who I used as an example in the beginning of a small sell-off, is actually being pursued as well by an activist investor, but this time it's a hedge fund, and it's to do the opposite of what AGL did. This hedge fund wants Shell to break itself into multiple pieces because they're saying Shell's not doing a good enough job. They're trying to appease too many people. So what they should do is they should take their legacy oil and gas extraction business and make a company out of it and then take its renewable energy and liquefied natural gas its cleaner energy business and make a company out of that now shell's leadership is resistant to the move and said it wants to use its legacy oil business to make multi-billion dollar investments in clean tech not remove that ability by separating itself but it's a situation the company is now having to consider for agl the prospect of decommissioning a majority of their generating capacity is also quite a daunting task, even though that's one they pursued. Because AGL is Australia's largest energy generator, and Australia is already dealing with intermittent blackouts. Regardless, AGL finds itself in a situation where its leadership is basically gone, and now it has to steer itself to a new strategy that involves keeping these carbon-intensive coal assets while figuring out how to establish a carbon reduction plan for the future so to hear about how this is going to happen and who is going to be at the helm at agl to conduct this difficult dance i called up harlan tufford who is one of my colleagues and a governance specialist and i asked him to take me through what the agl leadership is now dealing with after this abandoned spinoff so the the board has lost uh you know, a majority of its directors or is slated to lose a majority of directors uh, over the next you know, couple months, um, between the CEO leaving, uh, various independent directors are going to step down or have already left. Uh, we're down to just three directors on this board who are, you know, in it for the long haul, whatever that means. Um, and two of those directors have been there for, you know, less than five years. One of them's only been there a year. Um, so a lot has been thrust on these directors very suddenly. And you know, one of their, really their first job is to come up with a new strategy for this company. Um, and to do that, they'll probably need to scale up. They'll need to recruit new directors quickly. Um, it may be that the, you know, the same uh, people who opposed uh, the, uh, the demerger arrangement uh, will be interested in joining the board. And uh, they might you know, find allies in their former enemies. Um, uh, so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out and who joins this board and uh, how the board is able to work together and try and come up with a new a new way forward after this severe defeat. Right, because Mike Cannon Brooks is likely not going to go away. Just as billionaires before him have been stylized as corporate raiders who are people that buy a large number of shares to move the company in a direction of their choosing, Cannon Brooks has been branded Australia's first green corporate raider. He told a Financial Times reporter that his skills in technology, business, 
finance, and economics are perfect for helping a company transition to a greener world, and that he wasn't afraid of taking on anyone on a board or management team at a company that's in his focus. So I think it'll be really interesting to see if the vision that that Cannon Brooks has set out for the company as being an engine for uh, the greenification, the electrification um, of Australia uh, can become a reality and whether or not um, it, it can be as profitable as, as uh, he as an associate's hoped it would be. Uh, so in that sense, it's a potential win, it's a potential loss if he's wrong. Um, in the broader climate sense, though, uh, you're looking at the governance of climate change and the information investors have around this sort of thing, um, I think the the trend we're seeing, and you know, we're seeing it to, to smaller scale in many companies, of these uh, fossil fuel, carbon intensive assets being spun off to private entities. Um, yeah, those those are kind of put away in the dark. It's sweeping this, these assets under the rugs, and uh, it's if if you want to get to that, um, you know, that convergent scenario when it comes to uh, net zero alignment, where the whole market is moving toward net zero alignment instead of just a few leading companies moving toward net zero alignment. I think keeping more of these businesses in the public eye, more of these businesses under a disclosure regime where we can see what's happening and and what's being done and what's not being done, I think that's a win for all investors. And ultimately, AGL should have seen this coming. There's these vagaries of Australian security law that you can have a situation where a shareholder proposal is threatened, but a vote never actually happens but the board can see what the vote would look like if it did happen. And this happened last year at AGL. Shareholders said that they wanted the company to be pursuing a Paris-aligned business plan and that if a shareholder vote was put up to do this, that they would vote in favor of that. However, the board said, nah, we're not going to do that. So I guess the lesson here is clear. If your shareholders are signaling a path that they'd like you to take, as the leadership of a company, don't take that signal lightly, else you may find yourself a year later without a job. And that's it for the week. I want to thank Elshin and Harlan for talking to me about the news with an ESG twist. I want to thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard, don't forget to rate and review us. That puts us up higher in podcast lists and more people can find us. And if you want to hear myself or Ben Lee each week, don't forget to subscribe and that'll be a reality for you. Thanks again and talk to you next week. The MSCI ESG Research Podcast is provided by MSCI Inc. subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research, LLC, a registered investment advisor and the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or promotional recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.